Okay, so that's um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 to 23. And in the Bible that just says Holy Bible on the front, that's page 808. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters has one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to the light. It will be revealed with, revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he build, has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of his age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the word of life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are the and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Right here, let's pray, shall we? Um, Father, uh, thank you so much that your word is inspired by you and that it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness that uh, we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we pray that um, by your word and spirit that you would be changing our minds and our hearts and uh, that of the children in Kids Church as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do we grow a successful church? That's a question which occupies the minds of lots of Christians and particularly uh, those in leadership. And, but we're not likely to come to some of the same conclusions as the uh, Christians in the first century church of Corinth did. Because what was their thing? What was their big thing? Uh, it was worldly wisdom, wasn't it? Uh, you know, there were some of them who were just thinking that uh, if only our leaders like Paul could, uh, or a bit more philosophical, uh, if, they, if only they sounded a little bit more like Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, uh, we'd love that. And others would be impressed by that as well. And, well, that's, that's where the future lies. That would lead to successful. I think it's a little bit different in Australian culture, don't you? I reckon if any of our preachers started to sound a bit too philosophical, they might, we might show them the door, mightn't we? 
Um, that's our culture. But we do have our own worldly wisdom for growing churches. Um, from time to time, I receive uh, invitations and brochures in the mail and in the email and so on uh, to attend uh, church growth conferences or to uh, buy into church growth uh, strategy um, packages. And uh, these sometimes make some pretty big promises about success. Uh, it's not just that they claim that um, good leadership skills and uh, good management techniques and uh, a thought-through ministry model will be helpful for church life because uh, that's true. Those things are, are important and that's reasonable. But it's the promises that they make sometimes and that is that if you uh, follow uh, this particular process, if you do these things, then your church will grow. And sometimes I'll you know, give examples. Here was a church that 10 years ago had uh, you know, 50 people, now there's 5,000 people. And if you follow the same steps, the same processes as them, you too will find success. And it's the kind of thinking which... Um, finds its way, therefore, into church life. Uh, so that um, uh, sometimes we end up trusting in those things uh, more than we should and then valuing our leaders accordingly. I guess uh, in some of the worst-case examples of this, I've known of churches where pastors have been sacked by the fellow leaders or even by the congregation... Uh, because they have not achieved the church growth targets in terms of numbers of people attending church, uh, or they just don't do well enough on their performance reviews. It can be the modern equivalent of those in the Corinthian church who considered Greek philosophy to be the benchmark. And how did that go for them, by the way? Well, so far in 1 Corinthians, Paul has had to deal with the outcomes of this kind of thinking. And the outcome is that it led to division. Uh, a division around leaders, divisions around uh, people were clustering themselves, at least in their, in their thinking and their allegiances, uh, around uh, the leader who they admired as opposed to the leader who they found less admirable and so on. In fact, um, if you open up your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, have a look at the passage we looked at last week. In chapter 3, verse 4, let me read it for you. Um, Paul says there, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Literally, uh, that reads, uh, When one says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? See, it's a question of belonging, actually belonging to a party or belonging to, to a person. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. It's a matter of who you belong to and of who it is who really grows the church. Now, when we talk about uh, starting a church... What language do we use? How do we describe starting a church? What do we call it? We call it church planting, don't we? 
And that's a good term, it's a very good description which comes from today's passage. And in, Paul, in our passage today, uh, Paul corrects uh, some of the wrong thinking that the Corinthians had. They, they thought wrongly about the nature of church and they thought wrongly about the nature of leadership. And so uh, Paul here uses two common areas of life uh, as analogies uh, in order to correct that thinking. The first, of, the first area of life is that of agriculture. I'm going to read to you from verse 5 to verse 9 so we can focus on those verses if you have a look at verse 5. He says, What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now, here the Corinthian church is depicted as being a cultivated um, field. What would we call that? We'd call it a farm, wouldn't we? Uh, they're a farm. But how did this farm, with its harvest, come to exist? And what part did Apollos and Paul play? Uh, in verse 5, Paul says that he and Apollos are only servants through whom they came to believe. And that's interesting because notice that he doesn't, they did not come to believe in Paul. They did not come to believe in Apollos. They came to believe through Paul and through Apollos. And I think that's a subtle swipe at this I am of Apollos, I am of a Paul uh, kind of nonsense. Because neither Paul or Apollos own the farm. They're just servants who work on the farm. They've got different jobs. Um, Paul's job is to plant the seed. That is, uh, when he went to Corinth, uh, he went as an evangelist. He he shared the gospel with people for the first time. People believed the gospel and a church was planted. Apollos came later on and his job was to, to water the seedlings, which means to, to teach and to pastor the church so that it would um, produce a really flourishing crop. Now, I, I thank God very deeply for our church. Um, when you, when you think about it, you know, someone has planted the seed, um, someone's watered it, and it's usually a lot of people planting the seeds and a lot of watering going on, and some people plant and water it the same, uh, as well. But in the end, uh, what happens? Well, uh, you happen, we happen. Uh, brothers and sisters trusting in Jesus, loving God, repenting of sin, caring for one another, telling others about Jesus. And it's amazing because it is purely a work of God by his Spirit. You see, we can plant a seed, water the ceiling, but we can't create life. I mean, we're talking spiritual realities here. We're talking of dead pe people who are dead in their sins being made alive in Christ. Who can do that? 
only God. When I talk to farmers, they say it's like this, Scott. I go out and sow the seed, and I irrigate the crop, and then I pray like mad, because only God brings the growth. Without God, the true result of our ministry, uh, without God, the true result of all of our planting, of all of our watering, of all, everything we do, without God, the true result of that would be Zippo. Nothing. Zero. No matter what brilliant strategies we employ, and that is why we should pray. That is why we pray asking God to change minds and to change hearts and to grow his people. Uh, otherwise, if it's just up to us and our brilliance, we don't need to pray, do we? Because God's got nothing to do with it. That's just human philosophy and it results in nothing. But Paul's concern is still about unity. Uh, in verses 8 and 9... He wants the church to know that he and Apollos are not ministry competitors. That they are, the words he used there, that we are God's fellow workers. Now, what does that mean, uh, that they are God's fellow workers? Uh, does it mean that Paul and Apollos are in unity with God in this great work? Uh, or does it mean that as fellows, as servants of God, that they are in fellowship with one another uh, in this work. You see the difference here? Both are true. Both are true. Although in context, it seems to me that this is more about the unity uh, that exists between Paul and Apollos, that they are co-workers with one another, uh, with God. Um, either way, the disunity that's caused by the worldly attitudes of the leaders in Corinth is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the leaders are only servants of the one who actually gives the growth. Now, um, uh, Pete Charles, he's out in kids' church at the moment, but <coughs> Pete Charles and myself um, work you know, you know, um, in, uh, very much in this church here. And uh, we are different to one another, as you have noticed. He tells different kinds of jokes to me. Um, but uh, we have um, different personalities. Uh, we have different um, uh, talents. Uh, we have different ideas about certain things, uh, which we uh, share and, and help one another in regards to. Uh, we're different. We do different jobs. I'd be hopeless with the, you know, <clears throat> the Friday afternoon kids youth group, you know, chasing them around with a soccer ball out in the paddock there. You know, that's not me. That's, that's him. Uh, we're different, but we are united. We have different jobs. And that, by the way, is a partnership which has stood the test of time. When I first started working with Peter, he had a full head of black hair and no children. Uh, and that's a partnership which we guard very carefully. 
And we do so for the sake uh, not only of our own relationship, but uh, we, we, we don't allow a wedge to, be, uh, to, to, to split us apart. We don't allow anyone to wedge us apart. And that's uh, for the sake of the unity of this congregation. We do not want a Peter group or a Scott group or any other kind of group. We do it for the unity of our church and the glory of God. And that's what we seek to engender amongst all of the leaders in our church. Because in actual fact, it's not our church. Uh, We are God's church together. Uh, Paul and Apollos were not ministry competitors. They were co-workers. And so for the congregation to be dividing around in allegiances around them is absolutely, that's not wisdom. That's foolishness. Paul and Apollos are united. Why on earth would the congregation be divided um, because or around them? That's foolishness. And yet, the fact that it is God who gives a growth can never be an excuse for bad ministry, for bad workmanship. For the second area of life, which Paul uses to describe the church, is the construction industry. Uh, Let's just pick it up at verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the, the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here the church is like a construction zone. And when you think about it, I probably should have asked Peter to preach on this passage um, because one of his skill sets is that he's a master builder. He's a director of a building company. But um, folks, you're stuck with me. Sorry about that. Common sense, though, tells us that if you lay the foundation properly, you're off to a good start. Make sense? Uh, in, in verse 10, Paul, by God's grace, laid a foundation as an expert builder. Now, the word expert there the, in the original, it actually says a wise builder. And I think that that's important, actually, because it contrasts to the worldly wisdom of the Corinthians. So it should be translated as a wise builder. And here's a fun fact about this, actually. The word builder there in the Greek is actually the word architect. I'm not saying that it actually means architect. It is a word architect. It's a Greek word, architect, and that's what's used there. But that's uh, not uh, important. In verse 11, the foundation that Paul has laid as a wise builder is Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, and they're very vague about it, but there's nothing vague about this because because Paul has defined what he means by the foundation being Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 23, and in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, he says that, uh, that, that we preach 
Christ and him crucified. So that's what Paul means there. He's referring to the gospel, the foundation which he has laid is the foundation of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's the foundation upon which other leaders are now building the church. Now, he's not talking about Apollos here because Apollos is no longer in Corinth. He's back with, uh, with Paul. But he's talking about the leaders who are currently building the church in Corinth and he has got a warning for them. At verse 12, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burnt up, he will suffer loss, for he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And it has been shocking to learn of high-rise buildings, um, even apartment blocks with thousands of hundreds of people living in them, which look very impressive, very modern, but they only look impressive because of cladding uh, that is their surface, and cladding which turns out to be highly inflammable. Um, 72 people died in the a Grenfell Tower fire in London as a result of that. The materials used to build the structure uh, can be just as important as the foundation itself. I didn't hear that the Grenfell Tower had bad foundations. I didn't hear that the building was shifting or crumbling. Was, as far as I know, the foundations were fine. It was what the materials that the building was built with that were disastrous. And here, the worldly wisdom which the Corinthians are so impressed by, it's flammable material. It's wood, it's hay, it's stubble. Uh, you see, a church may appear to be very successful. Um, crowds of people filling auditoriums which would make any state government proud, huge offertories and so on, but in the end, the assessment which the only assessment which matters is that which will happen on the day of judgment. A, a church may be originally founded on the gospel, but if from there it is built with a message of worldly wisdom, then what good is it? What good is it if people are not coming to terms with the death of Jesus on their behalf? What good is it if people are not coming to terms and grappling with the lordship of Jesus over their lives and what that means in terms of humble service of God and change in character? What good is it if they are trusting in something which is other than the true gospel? Like, for example, the highly popular prosperity gospel, that God wants you to be rich and successful in this life, which is no gospel at all. People sometimes tell me, 
people going to uh, churches which I've got concerns about and they say to me, well, it's very biblical. All of our sermons, they use the Bible. The Bible is not being taught when we pluck verses out of context so as to support an attractive worldly philosophy, a worldly message which will pander to people's self-interest. Instead, all of our message should be infused with the foundation, with the gospel. Uh, in preaching the Old Testament, we learn about God and his character and his relationship with people and sin and judgment and so on. <clears throat> but in preaching the gospel, uh, we, we show how it points to Christ crucified. And in preaching through the New Testament, we show how the, the death of Christ on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead, how that actually ought to be transforming our lives and reshaping who we are and our character and our hope. That is building with materials which match the foundation. The, as Paul puts it, the gold, the silver and the precious stones of the gospel. Which interestingly <coughs> are in the Old Testament the kind of materials that were used to build the temple. And I don't think that that's just a coincidence. On the day of judgment, the question will not be, did you belong to a successful church? The question is whether you trust in Christ crucified for you. The lovers of wisdom in the Corinthian church were playing with fire. Because it's not their church, it's God's church. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. How does God grow his church? Well, we saw earlier on that it is by his spirit who <clears throat> God gives us, uh, who dwells in us, who transforms our minds and hearts so that God lives in us by his spirit. We are his temple, uh, not just as individuals, but corporately as a congregation, we are God's temple. All congregations of God's people are God's temple. It's actually a really beautiful picture of the local church. And God values his temple. Uh, God's temple is God's goal for all of eternity. Uh, God's plan and purpose has always been that he would create for himself a people who are his very own. A people who will love him and worship him and honour him forever. That's God's plan and God's purpose. And it cost him his son. And so this is a very important warning. Because there are still people who for selfish reasons will be divisive in church. And in so doing, they shift the focus away from the gospel. Destroy God's church... And God will destroy you. I think that's something worth taking note of, don't you? 
I think so. That's a fairly strong warning. But there's also some um, encouraging stuff in this passage because Paul says some things about rewards. Did you notice that when we were reading the passage? Uh, Have a look at verse 8. In verse 8, he says, The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. We'll go down to verse 14. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. That's kind of like a double-edged sort of verse there, isn't it? Um, But what does he mean by rewards? Someone once said to me, uh, and this was at a public meeting and some of you actually saw it, but he said to me that my mansion in heaven will probably be bigger than his. Uh, It was nice of him to encourage me in my ministry that way, but I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about. Sometimes in life, it is very rewarding just to do the right thing because it's the right thing, isn't it? Um, More than that, uh, when we uh, think, for example, about our families, um, when we pray uh, for our children and we teach our children um, to love and to serve God, when we invest our lives in that for their sakes and then we actually get to see them loving and serving God, that's incredible. How reward- we don't do it for the reward, but how rewarding it is. How rewarding when uh, we go and teach in Sunday school or in youth group or in, um, or, or in uh, school scripture or we uh, <clears throat> work with people in retirement villages or share the gospel with our neighbour uh, and pray for people. How rewarding it is uh, when they actually respond to that. It's beautiful. Imagine being in heaven and seeing others there who you had prayed for that they would turn to Christ or who heard the gospel from your lips or who were encouraged in Christ by your faithfulness and you get to see them in heaven. That's better than better reward than any big mansion, don't you reckon? Are going to be overwhelming? So gratifying. Now imagine, as in verse 15, that there's a person who believes in Christ crucified and they do a lot of activity in church, but all of their work in church was about something else. Um, Something which had nothing to do with the gospel, the true gospel. So that no one actually benefited from the gospel through them. And there, uh, there is no eternal fruit from their work. They were saved, but nothing which they invested in escaped the flames of judgment. It's like they've, Paul puts it here, that they've barely made it through themselves. So who is truly wise? Now, as Paul wraps up this passage... And by the way, I'm about to wrap up this sermon as well. You'll be pleased to know. 
Uh, in verses 18 to 23, he lifts their thoughts above their petty foolishness. Verse 21. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. The Corinthians had divided themselves around men. Some were saying, I'm of, of Paul. Others were saying, well, I'm actually a, more of an Apollos man because he's a bit more in tune with philosophy and I reckon that's where the future lies. But in God's wisdom, who do we belong to? To Christ. And the problem is that we can sometimes be so shallow. For we think that church is successful when we can match it with the world, uh, when we can impress the world on the world's terms, when we can even outdo the world on its terms. But whether we are a church of 15 people um, in a tiny country town <clears throat> with a lay preacher who's faithful but no one else is ever going to hear his sermons other than us, or whether we are a large church uh, in the city with a famous, well-sought-after preacher who speaks at conferences, and in that church the gospel is being preached, the gospel is impacting upon hundreds and thousands of lives, or whether we are kind of like an ordinary church, just like us. If we belong to Christ then what Paul says here is that we have it all uh, in, uh, in life, in death, in this world and in the next world. We have it all because we are in, not Paul, not Apollos, but in Christ and Christ is of God. So... <clears throat> Stop your petty, um, <clears throat> you know, exalting of particular leaders, and petty squabbles and divisions in church and just be reminded of who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great reminder of who we are as a church and uh, your role in actually changing our hearts and bringing us together. Father, we pray that we would be a church that is uh, built on that solid foundation of Christ crucified and, um, uh, and uh, builds upwards from there uh, using that same material of the gospel of Jesus, uh, that we would grow to maturity, that we would be united and that we would be those who bring honour and glory only to you. In Jesus' name, amen.